Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast includes discussions about sex. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, does abstinence work? Abstinence from sexual activity is the only way to have 100% protection against STIs in pregnancy, right? Well, technically, if you never touch another person's body with your body, then yes. But for most people, that's not how abstinence works. And like any method of protection from STIs in pregnancy, it must have a failure rate. So how often does abstinence fail? When I first started teaching human sexuality back in 2010, I came across a stat in the textbook for the course that said, in terms of pregnancy protection, planning to abstain from penis-vagina intercourse failed about 20% of the time. I really latched on to this stat. I loved having a number to point to in order to argue for why abstinence wasn't a very effective method. Even now, when I use a different textbook, I still keep that 20% failure rate stat in my lectures. But like so many things I've addressed on this podcast, I never looked into the research behind the statistic. So today's episode is a short and sweet dive into figuring out the failure rate of abstinence. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, I want to be clear that in this episode, I won't be talking about abstinence-only sex ed, which, to be clear, is a total shit show. If you aren't familiar, abstinence-only sex ed is a Christian-influenced mode of sex education common in the U.S. Of course, there are other places around the world that also offer no sex ed or abstinence-only sex ed, but the U.S. really seems to have cornered the market. The phrase abstinence-only sex education is also a bit of a lie because it doesn't actually provide sex education, except to tell people they are dirty and bad if they have sex before marriage. Abstinence-only sex ed has been documented in some cases to include blatant lies about contraceptive and STI prevention methods and to use other fear-based tactics to prevent people from having sex. But that's a story for another episode. Today, I just want to get to the bottom of the efficacy of abstinence as a method. So what does abstinence even mean? In studies of people who are abstaining from sex, it seems that most are truly only abstaining from penis-vagina intercourse, which I will call PVI for the rest of the episode. So that means for most people, things like outer course, aka dry humping, mutual masturbation, oral sex, and even anal sex are on the menu. When I worked on the sexual health phone line, I had a number of female callers over the years who were using anal sex as a way to preserve their virginity. Somehow there is this idea that a vaginal canal that is untouched by a penis is the only thing that matters. When we talk about abstinence, it's generally only used in the context of heterosexual couplings. Queer people are completely left out of this dialogue because it comes from a religious perspective where people don't want to believe queer people exist or don't want to acknowledge that they do. So that's why there's also this heavy focus on PVI as the thing that defines abstinence. As I said, it's rare that people who are abstaining from PVI are also abstaining from other sexual activities. 
And any sexual activity where there's genital contact or fluids being exchanged has a risk for STIs. So clearly, abstinence is not 100% effective against STIs if that kind of sexual behavior is happening. When we talk about failure rates, we usually talk about them in terms of contraception, because getting pregnant is an easily quantifiable, objective measure that something didn't work. And for contraceptive methods, their efficacy is reported with both a perfect use failure rate and a typical use failure rate. Perfect use is the rate of failure in ideal conditions where everything is done correctly. Pills are taken on time, condoms are put on correctly, etc. Typical use is what happens when things aren't perfect, when we throw up our pills from taking them the morning of a hangover, or store a condom in a wallet for a year before use. The more possibility there is for human error, the bigger the difference between perfect use and typical use failure rates. For example, according to Contraceptive Technology, which is the medical book for contraceptive information, external condoms, those that go on a penis, have a 2% perfect use failure rate. This means that 2 out of 100 people will get pregnant using only condoms as their contraceptive method in the first year of use, if the condom is used perfectly every time. The typical use failure rate of condoms is 13%. This is because if condoms aren't put on correctly, they can break, or if they don't fit right, they can fall off, or any other number of reasons why a condom wouldn't be as effective as intended. So the difference between perfect use and typical use is 11%. That's pretty big. For comparison, a copper IUD, which is inserted in the uterus and generally isn't prone to human error, has a perfect use failure rate of 0.6% and a typical use failure rate of 0.8%. So only 0.2% difference. Also for comparison, using no method at all for a year has an 85% incidence of pregnancy. Okay, back to abstinence. If we're talking about pregnancy prevention, then abstinence has a 0% perfect use failure rate. But if people are making out, fooling around, and getting turned on, what is the typical use failure rate of abstinence? On the American Planned Parenthood website, under their birth control options, they list the typical use failure rate for all the methods they include. But for abstinence, it just says it's 100% effective. So the only concrete number I have seen about typical use stats was from that human sexuality textbook that said 20%. I needed to know where that came from, so I dug through all of the references they provided in the section on abstinence, and as it turns out, not a single one has the 20% statistic in it. In fact, one even clearly states, researchers have never measured the typical use effectiveness of abstinence. That article was from 2003, though, so I figured for sure by now somebody must have measured the typical failure rate of abstinence. Turns out, I was wrong. As recently as 2020, I came across articles reiterating that typical use statistics have never been calculated for abstinence as a method. So we don't actually have hard data to answer this specific question. But I did come across some interesting research that could kind of help us guesstimate. There are a few lines of research that can inform our understanding of how effective abstinence is as a method. In the U.S., there was a major movement to get people, particularly women and girls, to pledge to abstain from PVI until marriage. 
Studies have examined these pledgers and have found that STI rates and sexual behavior rates are similar in people who have and haven't pledged abstinence. In one study of teens, pledgers reported lower rates of PVI than non-pledgers, but there were still 6% of pledgers who did have sex. And this study was in people with an average age of 14. You can imagine the numbers only get higher with age. Of course, these stats don't tell us about the method failing in the moment. It's very possible that folks who broke their abstinence pledges changed their mind in advance of having PVI. Another way to assess the effectiveness of abstinence is to look at people who use some sort of calendar or cycle tracking method where they abstain from sex during the high-risk window leading up to and during ovulation. This is called periodic abstinence. And one large study found that the pregnancy rate in people using periodic abstinence as a method had a 14% failure rate. Again, this doesn't tell us if the method failed in the moment, as in they were trying not to have sex and then they did, or if there was a miscalculation about the safe window for having sex. There were a few articles about contraceptive effectiveness in dermatology journals, which I thought was kind of odd until I came across one that explained that a certain acne medication that I cannot pronounce, so I will not say, harms fetuses. Actually, I just took a moment to Google the trade name, and it's Accutane. That's way easier to say than the actual name. Patients who are taking Accutane and can become pregnant are required to have a monthly pregnancy test and to commit to using two forms of contraception, for example, both condoms and the pill. This is part of a program called iPledge. However, there was a loophole in the iPledge requirement that didn't require two methods if people said their method was abstinence from sexual activity. However, as it turns out, some of those abstinent people were getting pregnant. The author of the article argued to not make an exception to the two forms of contraception rule for people using abstinence as their method and require them to also use an alternative form of contraception. So this is some evidence for abstinence failing to be an effective contraception method. And finally, I came across an article written by Heather Karina, author and founder of Scarletine, a sex education website I recommend constantly. As an aside, they're currently fundraising right now. I'll put a link in the bio to donate if you want to support them. Anyway, Karina wrote an article back in 2010 pointing out that there is a vested interest in not having information by governments who don't want to admit that abstinence isn't very effective. In the article, Karina estimates the typical use-failure rate of abstinence using data about virginity pledges, ages by which most people have sex, and typical use rates of no method and periodic abstinence, and comes up with a predicted 50 to 60% failure rate when abstinence is used alone. That is depressing. Of course, this is just an estimate, and we still don't have clear data on this. Something I also think is important to consider is that typical use failure rates are usually about how many people get pregnant in a given year. But what I really want to know is how many people practicing abstinence fail at being abstinent. I would imagine it's somewhere in like the 80 to 90% range. That's a separate but related question, but I think it's one that could be answered with a quick and easy survey. Question one, have you ever intended to be abstinent? Question two, if yes, have you had PVI when you plan to be abstinent? Easy peasy. 
So I think the real message from this episode is don't trust random things you read. In my case, it wasn't that random. It was a textbook on human sexuality. But it's even worse on the internet, where people can just say anything. With this statistic, I loved having a number to be able to attach to why abstinence is less effective than other methods of contraception. It was so satisfying, and I repeated it year after year. I really should have looked into it. So we know that the typical failure rate of abstinence is definitely above zero, but we just don't know by how much. Someone really needs to do a study on this. I do think an important takeaway, though, is if you plan on using abstinence from PVI as your birth control method, it's always good to have a backup method if pregnancy is a possibility. Health professionals often recommend two methods of contraception, like condoms and the pill, to increase efficacy, and abstinence should be no different. Of course, most people's definition of abstinence does not protect them from sexually transmitted infections. So if STIs are a concern, having some barrier methods handy is also important. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I am Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Doweknowthings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>